Please turn with me in your Bible back to Philippians chapter 1. We will continue our journey through this incredible book, this encouraging book, this perspective-altering book. So just reminding you, if you haven't been here recently, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this in the city of Rome under house arrest, chained to Roman guards, and he is trying to help change our perspective about what we grumble about and what we rejoice in, and he wants to turn everything on its head in light of the gospel. If you were not here last Sunday, uh, Greg preached a very helpful sermon on Philippians 2, 5 to 11 about Jesus' humiliation, which He chose on the cross, and then His exaltation by God. And that, that is the, the shape. It is cross and then crown. Jesus stoops to serve, dying a death of a criminal, even though He wasn't one in our place, and then God exalts Him. Why? If you were here last week, I mean, it was pretty deep, right? I mean, it was theologically pretty intense, and, and, and that passage is very uh, theologically deep. Why does Paul go into this deep theological paragraph in the midst of this letter? And I'll, I'll just say this as I'm sort of setting this sermon up. Paul, uh, Paul doesn't fall into one of these opposite errors that we tend to fall into. I'll just be straight up with you. So, one, one error that we can struggle with as Christians is that we can, we can get so into the deep nitty-gritty of theology, which, by the way, Paul has no problem doing, right? Just read last week's text. Paul, Paul wants to do deep theology, which we should be all about, but I can have a tendency to want to do the deep theology, and when, when we've finished our theology and, you know, crossed every T, dotted every I, we've got our theology down, then we just kind of go about our everyday life like nothing happened, okay? Paul, Paul is not that person. The other extreme is, is to say, let's just get practical and not worry about theology. Like, why all this theology? Oh, man, Jesus is of the same nature as the Father, and He had, took on a human nature. Why do I need to know all this stuff? Can't we just live our lives for Jesus? Can't we just, you know, don't worry about doctrine, let's worry about Jesus. As if those were opposite things, right? Which Jesus? Now you're doing doctrine, okay? So, so the, the point here is, we, we want, some people want to be practical, but not theological. Some people want to be theological, but want to skip out on the practical. And the Apostle Paul does he do both? He does both to a crazy degree. There is no one more theologically deep than the Apostle Paul. Just read Philippians 2 and 3. And there is no one more practical about everyday life. And for Paul, the deep theology always, always terminates in a life lived for Jesus. Always. The theology is the fuel burning in the fire in order to create the engine that, that moves for Jesus. It, it, the theology is necessary, but it must lead to application. And so today, we're really getting into the application of what Paul said in last week's text. So, I'm borrowing my title, some of my points, some of my opening comments from a variety of commentaries. I won't go into all the details, but I, these are not original with me. But my title is, Be Bright Stars in a dark sky. Be bright stars in a dark sky. And how are we to… we'll explain what that means as we go, but what… how do you do that? How do we become, as a church, bright stars in a dark sky in this world? 
And there are three ways that we'll do that, and we'll walk through these three points for quite, quite some time here. So number one, how do we become bright stars in a dark sky? Number one, we work out what God works in. We work out what God works in. Number two, we shine by not grumbling. We shine by not grumbling. And number three, we must become a joyful sacrifice. We must become a joyful sacrifice. So let me read the text again here. This is verses 12 through 18 of Philippians chapter 2. And this is God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So let's start with our first point here. Um, work out what God works in. Let's spend some time on verses 12 and 13. These verses are so packed, I almost did the whole sermon on 12 and 13 because they are incredibly significant. Let me read them again, and I'll probably be reading them repeatedly as we go. Just listen one more time. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, I love this. When Paul is about to give a strong exhortation to, to his readers, the Philippians, also to us, Paul says, he calls his, his listeners his beloved, those whom he loves, his dear loved ones. In other words, when, when we are going to be either correcting a friend or exhorting a friend to obey Jesus… There, there needs to be evident affection and love in our heart for those we are exhorting. Uh, it is one thing to just be sort of a taskmaster and stand up and say, here is what you must do. Here is your duty. You should obey. How do you feel when people confront you like that? You should be obeying. You know, I, uh, thank you. I feel so cared for right now. No, what Paul says, he says, dear loved ones, my beloved. He pours this affection out on these people over and over in his letters. In chapter 1, he said, I long for, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So, Paul has this great affection that is visible in the way that he talks to his hearers. And then he says something interesting. He says, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. I got to throw this out there. So, when Paul was present with the Philippians, they obeyed him. They obeyed. He had the Word of God, and they obeyed Paul, which was really obeying God because Paul was conveying God's message. Well, Paul actually says that their, their obedience 
has been going even stronger with his absence. Now, think about this for a second. If you're a teacher, how many of you have ever been a teacher of any kind, like grades, elementary school, college, high school? I think it's a lot of people in this room. Yes, okay. So, you all know that children obey better in your presence than in your absence. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I've had times where I was in a, a modular, which is a fancy word for trailer last year, and uh, when I was in the modular, uh, I was near my car. I could park very near. That was a perk of being out there. I was parking right nearby. And uh, occasionally during my study hall or during a class, I would have to leave the room to go get something from my car that I'd forgotten about that I needed in, in class. And so I would, you know, I'd give one of those like, all right, everybody. I'll be back in like 30 seconds. Don't set the building on fire. And I would go, and I'd go to my car, and I'd come right back, and, and oh, is, everything, is everything okay? And, uh, and you, you always know when the teacher leaves the room, typically obedience doesn't go up. <laughs> typically obedience goes down. And Paul says, don't let this be so when I am absent. When I am absent, when I am absent from you, let your obedience grow all the more. And, and this is a sign, by the way, isn't it, of maturity. Uh, immature people only obey when there are eyes watching, right? Mature people, doesn't matter if there are eyes watching, they're doing their work. They're doing what, they're, what they need to be doing. Th- there's a kind of maturity, a kind of self-government, right? I, I can sort of, I know how to discipline myself and continue doing what I've been called to do. And, and this is not some kind of thing left to ourselves, it's by God's grace. But Paul says, you don't need me present physically for you to thrive spiritually, you guys have God, he will say in a moment, at work within you. It doesn't matter if I'm there. It matters if God is present. And God is present, and he's at work among you. Even if I can't come see you soon, he'll even say in a moment, even if I am executed in Rome, which is possible, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, let your obedience thrive for the Lord Jesus. Now we get into this fascinating part in verse 12. He says, middle of the verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The work out and the your are plural. So, he's talking to the whole church. He says, all of you need to work together, work out your salvation as a a church. And um, I, this, this will bore everybody. I'll just say there's a big debate over the last like 30, 40 years in the commentaries about whether or not Paul is talking corporately to the whole church or he's referring to individuals. And I really am not trying to be snarky about this comment, but I think the answer is yes. How could it not be both? Uh, Paul is, of course, addressing the church. It's written to the Philippians, right? It's written to the church. So, of course, Paul's talking about how the church together is unified. Chapter 2, be of the same mind. You cannot do that in isolation be of the same… I guess you could. You just agree with yourself. Be of the same mind. Be of the same heart. No, he's talking about how they act together, like a a soccer team. Make sure you guys are working together as a team. But when you address a team, I'm sure there are coaches in the room, certainly not me, but some of you in the room. If If you've ever been a coach, my guess is, do you care about how the team is working corporately, or do you care about how each player is working individually? The answer is yes right? Of course, if one player is just acting selfishly and acting in a lazy fashion, it affects who? The whole team, right? It's a breakdown on the whole team. So, Paul's saying, yes, of course this is about the local church together, but there's no way all together can be working out their salvation unless everyone individually as part of the team is working together on that. So, 
I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think Paul is referring to all of the above. He's talking about the church, but he also has to be talking about each individual member of it. And he says, all of you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there, there are some who have horribly misunderstood this verse, sadly, in church history, uh, to say, essentially, this, this verse is saying, work for your salvation. Earn your salvation. And I'm like, have you read the rest of the letter? Have you read the rest of Paul's letters? I don't think that's, a, that's what Paul's getting at. Just read chapter 3 if you're wondering about grace for salvation. Uh, so, Paul's not saying work for your salvation. He's not saying earn your salvation. Some people have said, he, no, he's saying earn your salvation and be terrified you may not do enough. That's why he says with fear and trembling, work for your salvation. No, no, no. no. That's, that's not what he's saying. Uh, that, that's not what he's saying. Just, just uh, if you're wondering, just real quick, chapter 3. Uh, just look real quick at verse 9. He talks about gaining Christ, 3.9, and to be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Does that sound like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Paul says, listen, you cannot earn this righteousness. It is a gift from Jesus by faith. So, that's obvious. So, what does Paul mean? Three things he doesn't mean. Number one, he does not mean work to earn your salvation. That should be very apparent, I hope, to all of us. Number two, he doesn't say, God saved you and now the rest is up to you. So, God, you know, He forgave you and now you better just work really hard to make the rest of everything work out. Remember Galatians? You began by the Spirit and you're trying to be completed by works of the flesh who has bewitched you. Paul says, doesn't sound like Paul favors that option, right? Calls it a form of being bewitched. So, no, and the third option, Paul's not saying, God saved you, so sit back and relax. Just float down the currents of sanctification as you grow just accidentally, as you just sip your lemonade with a little umbrella over your head on your little raft, and just God just takes you from glory to glory. That is not what Paul is saying, okay? Anybody who tries that for about three days becomes a uh, a less holy individual. <laughs> we'll just say it that way. So, wh what is Paul saying? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation is another way of explaining obey Jesus. That's what he means. Obey Jesus. H hold your spot here and turn to the right a couple of books to Titus chapter 2. Turn to the right a couple of books to Titus chapter 2. Paul would have written this book just a couple years after he wrote Philippians. And if you look at Titus 2, look with me down at verse 11 and see if you see a similar idea here of salvation leading to obedience. Titus 2:11. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's what he says. For the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And what does grace and salvation do in our life practically? Verse 12, training us to renounce, say no, to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Why did He die for us? to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. 
And while we're on this point, look at 3, 5. Excuse me, 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So, do you see? Paul says, yes, we are made right with God by grace alone, and then what does grace and salvation look like in everyday life? It trains us. It, this, this, I mean, it's like it's time to work out kind of a thing. Paul says, discipline yourself for godliness in 1 Timothy 4. Discipline yourself. Train yourself for godliness. So, salvation doesn't just make us right with God and leave us as we were. Grace enters our life, and nothing will ever be the same again. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live upright and self-controlled lives in this age as we wait for Jesus. So, you can turn back to Philippians chapter 2. So, work out your salvation means we, we, we work. There, there is uh, one author called this holy sweat. We train ourselves for godliness. Uh, we, it does not happen automatically. We, we must work. Your Bible, you know, God is not going to read your Bible for you. God is not going… I mean, Jesus prays for you, but He doesn't pray for you. You see what I mean? He doesn't pray instead of you. He prays on your behalf, but He doesn't pray in your place. You pray. Uh, you pray. You're commanded to. Uh, the, the Lord uh, is enabling us. So, we must work hard by God's grace to flesh out our salvation, to bring it into everyday life, and to show what it is like to be sons and daughters of God's kingdom. And then he says, with fear and trembling. Why? Because we're so terrified that if we don't do enough good works, we will perish? I don't think so. Fear and trembling is, is the language you use when God is nearby. When God is near, even angels are quaking, right? It is fear and trembling. Moses at the burning bush, right? He was afraid. When God is present, Isaiah sees the Lord. He's terrified. John in Revelation sees the resurrected Jesus and falls on his face as though dead. When, when we are in the presence of God, there is going to be, and there should be, fear and trembling. But this is not simply terror. It is awe and wonder, uh, reverence in the presence of God who is not just at work in the world, which is easy to maybe say. He's at work in you. The same God at that burning bush is present inside of you who know Jesus, and He is carrying on a work within your heart by His Spirit, actually present. That should cause fear and trembling. It's not insecurity fear, it's reverential, worshipful fear. Look at verse 13. This is just fantastic. Paul does not want us to think it's left to ourselves to work out our salvation. Verse 13, for, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Uh, let, let me just show you a cross-reference here. If you, if you don't mind, flipping one book to the right, it may just be a page or two to your right, Colossians chapter 1, the last two verses. See if you can hear a similar idea here for Paul, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, this is Colossians 1.28, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, look at 29. For this I toil, struggling. Now, just pause mid-sentence. Is Paul working? 
To this end, I toil struggling. So Paul is agonizing. He is working. He is toiling. He is struggling. He's getting beat up. He's getting imprisoned. He's getting whipped. He's getting beaten with rods. He's getting shipwrecked on and on and on. Paul is working, laboring, toiling. Let's continue. Struggling with all whose energy? His energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, do you see the dynamic? Paul works really hard. And who is doing that in Paul? Who's giving him the desire and the ability to work this hard? God's might at work within him. God is powerfully working within me. Paul would still be Saul of Tarsus had God not powerfully worked within him. And it's the only reason why he became perhaps the greatest Christian we've ever heard of is not because of Paul's, you know, willpower. It's because the Holy Spirit transformed his will, changed his desires, changed his actions, and so underneath Paul's radical life is a move of the Spirit giving him those desires. Take you to another spot here. Go to, go to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to show you this is a common theme in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when you look down at verse 10, you'll see the same idea. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Now look at the words. On the contrary, who worked? I worked harder than any of them. That's the other apostles. <laughs> Paul has the audacity to say, I worked harder than Peter, James, and John. That's what he just said. You can look at the previous verse and what's all going on here. So he says, I, I worked harder than any of the apostles. And then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul says, hey, I worked harder than any other apostle, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God working. It wasn't me. It was God through me. And uh, I'll just show you one more because they're, they're all over the place. Go to Galatians to the right, just two books, I think. Galatians 2, verse 20. And this is probably, this has got to be a favorite verse of at least somebody in the room. This is a great verse. Galatians 2, 20. Listen again to these themes. Is Paul working or is Christ working? Galatians 2, 20. I'll start in verse 19. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. <laughs> now, do you see? Paul says, I don't live anymore when I live, like Paul. In the same verse, in the same sentence, you said you don't live, and then you said you live twice. What? He says, I don't live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So now when I live, I live by His strength, by His, by His work in my life. So you'll see this as a repeating theme, and you can go back to first, I mean, excuse me, to Philippians chapter 2. Paul says the only way this work is going to be carried out is if God does the work in us. 
And, and let, let me just clarify something here. Uh, one commentator said this. This was very helpful for me. See if this makes sense. In rescuing us from sin's punishment, in rescuing us from sin's punishment, Christ does it all apart from us, right? His work, His life and death and resurrection. In rescuing us from sin's punishment, He does all of it apart from you and I. We weren't even born. He did all of it, rescuing us from sin's punishment. In rescuing us from sin's power, Christ does it all through us, right? So, He rescues us from sin's punishment apart from us entirely through His work on the cross and the resurrection. We weren't even alive. You're saved 100% by His actions, not your own. And then, how does He save you from the power of sin day in and day out? He does it through you, right? He does it all through you. Underneath every desire to pray in your heart and mine, and I will admit, it is a, it is a fire that almost goes out sometimes, but there are… When the desire to pray, the desire to read Scripture… Maybe this week you said a bold thing about Jesus to someone, and it just took everything in you, and you wanted to, and you said it. You have that moment, you're like, I actually did it. Unbelievable. I said something about Jesus to a, to a person who's not a believer, and I, I, I didn't spontaneously combust. It was okay. We made it. Um, in those moments, those desires, they never originate in your will. But you willed them. You chose them, right? But they don't come from you. You work out your salvation because God is at work in you to give you the will and the work for His good pleasure. Even the desire to honor Jesus is a gift from Jesus given to you, worked within you. And we simply work out what God, by His Spirit, works within us. That is how this works. And just to kind of trace how this works in the book of Philippians, look at chapter 1, verse 6, to see this theme running through the book. Philippians 1, 6, a great verse, but listen again. In view of this theme… And I am sure of this, that He, God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Behind your conversion stands God who began that good work. It wasn't like you were just a good person thinking good thoughts. God stepped into your life. He intervened. He got a hold of you. He brought new birth and new life. He gave you the gift of faith, and then He has been leading you from, from, from step to step, glory to glory, as it says, one step after another through your life as a believer. Look at chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Middle of 28 says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, came from God. For it has been granted to you, given as a gift, that for the sake of Christ you should believe in Him and suffer. So, hang with me here for a second. There's a lot of confusion about this in the evangelical world. A lot of people think that faith comes from your free will and that God can coax and He can sort of encourage and He can woo, but God is not decisive in whether or not you believe in Jesus. Paul would disagree with that, I'm convinced. Paul is saying the very, your very faith itself, if you're a believer, the very fact that you believe in Jesus did not originate with you. It is a gift from a merciful God undeservedly given to His own, to His sheep. And here it says that faith was given, it was granted to you. I cannot give my will credit for my faith. Now, does my faith, excuse me, does my will exercise faith? Yes, 
but does faith originate with my free choice? No, because Romans 3 says no one seeks after God apart from the Spirit of God. Ephesians 2 says we were not sort of comatose, not sickly. We were dead in our trespasses, and God made us alive. By grace you've been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, a, not according to works, lest we should boast. And then he says, for God created us for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So from beginning to end, it is all of grace. If you are a believer, it is not owing to your better choice that you are a believer. It is owing to God's choice. It is owing to God's work in your life that you have the gift of faith and that you are exercising the gift of faith. And by the way, again, the Bible has no embarrassment placing your responsibility to work out your salvation and believe and follow God right next to the doctrine that God has to work in you. No embarrassment putting those two truths side by side and teaching them in the same sentence in this passage. Okay, th there's more we could do, but we've got to move on. So, number two, we need to also shine uh, by not grumbling. So, look with me at verse uh, 14 through 16, or 14 to the middle of 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, I'll just tell you, I would never have known this. Virtually every commentary pointed me to this verse that I would not have known. You don't have to turn there, but this is Deuteronomy 32.5, and here, listen, to, can you hear Paul's words here? Moses writes this, talking about the nation of Israel during the wilderness wandering, uh, Moses writes, they have dealt corruptly with God, they are no longer His children because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, do you hear where Paul's getting his words? Paul says, you're really the opposite of the wilderness generation. They were not the children of God. They proved themselves to not be the true children of God. They weren't true believers, and they were actually a perverse and twisted generation. And Paul says, be the opposite of the wilderness generation. They grumbled, they were perverse and twisted, and they were not the children of God truly. He says, you are the true children of God. Therefore, show it by separating yourself from the perverse and twisted generation. And how do we do that? I mean, Honestly, I'm, I'm expecting at this point, Paul says, here's how you shine and show yourself different from the perverse and twisted generation. You memorize the entire New Testament in Greek. You're like, yeah, that would be on me. Get the Hebrew Bible and just know it, every letter. Spend 73 hours a week. What, I mean, just fasting or something. You know, Paul doesn't do… You know, you know what he says? If, if you want to be a shining star in the night sky so that the world stops what they're doing and fixes their gaze on you and says, you've got something I don't have and I want it. What do you do? You're expecting something huge right here. You ready? Don't grumble. That's what he says. Verse 14. Listen to it again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you want to look it up, Daniel 12, 2 and 3 is referenced there as well, the lights shining in the world. Not grumbling, Paul? I expected something a little bit more, you know, a little bit more amazing sounding. 
And I think Paul would say to us, um, you know, it's, it is easier to not commit adultery than it is to not grumble. Got that from someone else. Think about it. Don't murder. You're like, I th- okay, think I could pull that off maybe by God's help. Uh, not grumbling is a far more difficult command to obey than most commands in the Bible. Just think about it for a second. Don't steal your neighbor's car. Not really something I'm being tempted by at this moment, but grumbling? Oh man, I I have my PhD. I don't have a PhD in anything except grumbling. That's the one area of study where I I think I have my PhD, uh, my dissertation. You should read it. It'll make you feel really good about life. I mean, this is a a real, this is a genuine uh, sin struggle in my life, and Paul is alluding to the wilderness generation. The word grumbling, this word in the Greek Old Testament, is used seven, I think it's seven of its eight times in reference to the wilderness generation. What, what is so bad about grumbling? You ever think about this one? This is a constant struggle. I mean, even if most of us in this room don't commit the really flagrant sins, my guess is every one of us has grumbled in the last couple of days. Every single one of us, probably without an exception. Maybe there's a couple of you, and I need to talk to you afterwards and take copious notes if you haven't grumbled this past week, because that's, that's an achievement right there by God's grace. And it is possible. But what is so serious about grumbling? Why did God get so angry at the wilderness generation for their marked sin of grumbling. Grumbling says God is a fool. That's what grumbling says. Because don't you believe God is sovereign? And don't you believe what just happened makes you really angry? And and I'm not talking righteous anger. I'm talking inconvenience anger, right? This is not what I wanted for me anger. That's saying God does not know how to run the world. And if I was at the helm... I would be doing a better job. Now, you're not saying it in those words, we're not that crazy, but we are feeling that. That's what we are expressing. We're saying, yes, God is sovereign, He's running the world, and He did bring this detour into my life, and I really hate it. And it's, it's a bad idea, and if I was God, I would fix this right now. Right? Our grumbling is saying, we know better than God. That's why the wilderness generation was showing their lack of trust in God fundamentally. And, and this is something we must fight how do we fight this? Just, just go ahead and throw this out. Verses 5 to 11 help us fight this. I just, just think about this. Jesus, although having the same nature as God, worshiped in heaven, He laid aside His privileges, but not His deity. He added to Himself a human nature, and He lived a life in obscurity, And then when he became famous, he became hated. And then he was crucified, dying in our place. And Jesus does not ever sinfully complain to God. He instead entrusts his soul to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what Jesus does. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, Jesus doesn't complain once. He doesn't even open his mouth. And if anyone had a right to complain on the way to Golgotha, it was Jesus. And Jesus, because he loves his people and trusts his Father, never had a moment of sinful murmuring. And what we need to do is see that that is how we are rescued. That is how we are saved and adjust our life and begin to appreciate that and live accordingly. I've got something else to say about the gospel in a moment, but let's look at the third point. 
So we work out what God works in. We shine by not grumbling. And number three, we become a joyful sacrifice. And this took me a minute to understand. Look at the middle of verse 16. I'll start at the beginning of verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Just footnote, when Paul talks about being proud, you say, what? He's talking about boasting in what God has accomplished through him, not what he has accomplished. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. (laughs) Again, this is so far from where I live my daily life that it's hard for me to stand here and explain it to you without feeling like a complete hypocrite on this point, okay? Are you just… Paul is under house arrest, and he may be executed within a couple of months, and he actually does get executed in a couple of years from Nero. While waiting and not being able to do what he had planned to do, I would be a grumbling, complaining, claiming my rights mess. You understand what this would be like? Instead, Paul says, hey, guys, don't feel bad for me. Even if I am about to die for your faith, I am glad, and I want you to rejoice with me. And Paul uses the word joy four times to talk about his death in that statement. What is this pouring out, the sacrifice? I didn't understand this, so I had to look it up. This is very interesting. So, there was a daily sacrifice every morning in Israel and every evening at sunrise and sunset. Both Exodus and Numbers, I think, talk about, I think maybe it's Leviticus, talk about this. And what happens is, when they would do is they'd take a lamb a year old in the morning, every single morning. They'd kill it, and then while it was being burned, they would pour a drink offering on top. It might have been wine, a couple of gallons of wine. They would pour it on top of the burning sacrifice, and it would immediately evaporate, right? And it would go up in the air like a, like a pleasing aroma to God. And what that did was the wine that was poured out, or whatever drink it might be, when it was poured out on a burning sacrifice, that, that drink offering was, was simply adding to the more substantial sacrifice already there. Does that make sense? It wasn't poured out on its own. It was poured on a pre-existing animal. And here's the analogy. Paul says, me dying is the small part of the sacrifice. I'm just the drink offering. You guys are the main portion. You're the main sacrifice. As you are sacrificing your so-called rights and whatnot, and you're living for the good of others, you are a pleasing sacrifice to God. And if I die in service of that, I'm just the drink offering. I'm the wine poured on top of your sacrificial faith, and I am glad to be a pleasing aroma going up to God as my head is severed, perhaps in a few months from Nero. And Paul, his command is four times to be rejoicing. Let me read it one more time because it's a little hard to understand. Verse 17 and 18. See if this makes more sense. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, how do we shine? We sit there next to Paul, chained to a guard, waiting possibly to be unjustly killed, and we say, even if this is the end for me, and this is an act of great governmental injustice to kill me, even if that's true, I am going to be marked by sheer joy knowing that my death and life contributed to the sacrifice of your faith. 
Paul's just overcome with joy at the thought of dying a martyr's death for the good of other people. That is a different kind of life and a different kind of perspective. I want to wrap up with this from Tony Meredith's commentary. He, thinking of this whole chapter, Tony compares Adam in the garden with Jesus as presented here. And just listen, I hope this is an encouragement to you uh, before I pray. Listen to the comparison between Adam and Jesus, which was likely in the back of Paul's mind here. Adam was made in God's image. However, Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God. Jesus chose to to come in the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus chose to empty himself. Adam was discontent being God's servant, and Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on the world. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced. Jesus was exalted by the Father. For those who are believers in in the room, uh, let us be encouraged by the truth of Jesus' self-sacrifice. Let's meditate on the beauty of what Jesus did until I begin to stop claiming my so-called perks and privileges and begin to lay things down for the good of others. Let's see that Jesus deserved to not have nails driven through His hands and feet so that I can deal with the lesser inconveniences that God brings into my life or into your life. And let's trust the one whose nails were, who had nails driven through His hands. Let's trust Him with, with our future and with our life. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that this gospel is available to you right now, free of charge, and it is to be received by faith and by faith alone, not by works and not by your merit. If you're not a believer, turn right now in this moment from your sin and yourself and trust in the finished work of Jesus. He will save you. He will forgive you entirely. He will transform your heart. He will give you new desires, and He will keep you walking with Him by grace until glory because He is a good and gracious God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help our church to be bright stars that shine in a dark world. Lord, our world is in so many ways so dark right now, and the darker it is, the brighter your light can shine. Help us to begin to adopt the perspective of Paul in these verses. Help us to see that the greater the trial we are enduring, the greater the chance we have to show your sufficiency and your goodness in it, even if there are tears along the way. Lord Jesus, 
thank you that you are so much greater than the first Adam. Thank you that you were obedient, that you trusted your Father, that you resisted temptation, that you chose to be a slave of others, that you died in our place in shame, and you have now been exalted to the right hand of the Father and are interceding for us. God, help us to worship you, help us to love you more, and help us even as we sing now to do so in a way that would honor you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.